So I was in training again. Oh. Yeah. And this time we're actually training. So it, we're going off. And it's going okay. We're a bit stressed. Mm. It's a um, bit of a hiccup. You know, so we're a bit anxious. The doors are open to the big double gut, to the big garden. The double garden! Double, double garden. garden in London. What they did, they made a garden and then they put another one right on top. Oh, nightmare. They've got like layers of garden. It's beautiful. It's great. It's like a pizza burger. So <laughs> suddenly we hear an air raid siren. In the present. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah we hear it through the, the echoes of history. No, right this pissing minute, we hear a air raid siren and i freak out thinking hang on a minute what's the four minute warning actually meant to sound like because i don't feel like we ever got a drill in our lifetime mm. but i mean so you start asking around <laughs> i i went outside to see if i could figure it out and i went into the sort of double garden and everyone else stays inside looking very worried and i'm looking around and i i do genuinely think maybe i'm about to die what? maybe genuinely this is it and in three minutes yeah. You know, I'm right by, I'm like te- within 10 miles of Canary Wharf. So. Prime target. Yeah. Probably immediate disintegration. Probably not even going to see a flash. Yeah. Not even going to have time to uh, reflect on your past mistakes. Uh, nope, not even. Uh, they're just going to get blasted right out of me. And I'm in the garden, and honestly, genuinely, the thought occurs to me what do you want to be the last thing you think about? Uh- that that's an earnest thought yeah. in my head and i didn't think of anything i saw that there was a mother and, and child um going past in a, with a pram and they weren't paying attention to anything and i was like okay i'll see a mother and her child that'll be the last thing i see that's okay <laughs> and then the next thing that goes through my head i'm not proud of <clears throat> but i think <laughs> i think oh at least i'm gonna die in a garden <laughs> not like them <laughs> not like the trainees and my boss <laughs> They're going to die in a training room. At least, at least, my death is going to be better than this. It's going to mean something. Not like them. <laughs> this is symmetry. My story has come to a neat conclusion. You know, things just die. All that time you spent in gardens. <laughs> of course! It had to end this way. The end was in the beginning is the end. It's the Pullman show. It's all about you. <laughs> Fucking hell. It's just, that was such a weird thought to go through my head. Such a spiteful little thought to be the last thing I was going to go through my head before atoms. <laughs> before oh. less than atoms. <laughs> but I think that's, I think that's fitting. That's a very fitting <laughs> end to the book on the human race. Like, oh, at least I got it right. At least I'm all right. <laughs> Best death ever. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> this would look really cinematic in IMAX. <laughs> God. Did, did you think at all that you wouldn't, ever get to see christopher nolan's tenet no no <laughs> in the afterlife he'll he'll act out of shadow puppets and it'll be the most epic thing in the world in the afterlife every christopher nolan afterlife. film is starred in only by christopher <laughs> nolan <laughs> doing all the faces <laughs> you mustn't be afraid to dream a bit bigger darling <laughs> it's a dream oh, you. in a dream I wish you wouldn't do the impression of uh, Ken Watanabe. It's not on. Every, <laughs> every line of dialogue in every Christopher Nolan film in the afterlife that's starred in only by Christopher Nolan begins with imagine. <laughs> imagine me not being able to remember you. But yeah, eventually the siren stops and I went back in. Yeah. Christ, what a day to forget to wear trousers. Oh, <laughs> uh, good. <laughs> good. Great. Oh, uh, Okay. <laughs> that was that was the whole thing, wasn't it? That was, it was just good. Yeah, great. Well <laughs> Should have said very good. I meant very good.
Hello and welcome to the podcast that's been around the block a few times and knows all the best places to be on the on the block. Best bits of the block. Hmm. I'm Paul Salt. I'm the block expert. Come with me. Come with me on a magical... Oh, we're done. <laughs> it's the corner. Yeah, it's we're... another one. It's that corner. <laughs> oh, there's a fourth corner. You weren't expecting that, were you? <laughs> and funnily enough... That... Oh, no, there's the first corner again. Different time, though. Shadow's a bit different. Check your watches, kids. <gasps> <laughs> ah, the future. <laughs> I told you I'd take you there. <laughs> we hate you, Mr. Blockman. Block Poor expert. freaks out and starts throwing trash cans through windows. <laughs> I want to go back! <laughs> Easy, Timmy. <laughs> Who's the president? <laughs> You're not going to like this, Timmy. <laughs> it's the same guy. <laughs> well, you've watched John Wick 3 and Rocketman and Toy Story 4. And you've got your Spider-Man tickets for tomorrow. Uh, and that's all the good movies Hollywood can make this summer. Yeah. Met their quota. All that's left is Hobson Shaw or less. And the wank party. The <laughs> obligatory wank party that happens now till February. There's a poster of Hobson Shaw at the gates of Hollywood. And it says you must be this shit or more in order to get released this year. <laughs> Do you mean this shit or better or this shit or worse? And Hollywood just goes, too busy wanking, mate. <laughs> Not to worry, we're getting a new Rambo in September. Did you fucking know that? I didn't. I didn't know that. What, with <laughs> sliced Stallone? <laughs> that also sounded like the theme music to Coronation Street. Which trailer were you watching, Paul? <laughs> you see, we got this new... This new butcher is coming. <laughs> I want pork sausages, love. <laughs> What's wrong? Oh, I think he's Jewish. <gasps> God's sakes, north of England. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot less quaint than I remember it being. <laughs> In the meantime, until you get your, your Rambo, uh, we've got some cinematic nuggets for you to nug. Uh, as on. always... Uh, the goal is to demonstrate just how rich modern film really is, and to dredge up the odd old gem from the past, too. Yeah. To further emphasise that you're never done with movies. There'll always be more no. truffles to tr- snuff, yeah. snout out. You think you're done. You've completed the blood pact. <laughs> the Bay of Pigs happened. Nam happened. And you thought you were free. And then who comes knocking on your door but <laughs> Director Park? And he's got a new role for you as Min Sik Choi's gimp boy. And you're like... Oh. Never done with movies. Back off to your Rambo. <laughs> you look at the picture of Rambo and you go, well, <laughs> I would rather get bummed by Min Sik Choi. <laughs> and it's hit new movie. <laughs> Thanks, Park Chan Wook. <laughs> He's optioned my autobiography about being bummed by Betty Davis. <laughs> and it's playing every role by Min Sik Choi. <laughs> Fuck me. Dark times ahead for yeah. all of us. Yeah, great. We're just going to talk about a whole bunch of great films that you might have missed. Can't bloody wait for this. So, Paul, I'll start. Nah, go on. <laughs> yeah, it was just a trick. Love you, really. Are you sure? Yeah. Ah. Go on, dive on in to the shitty puddle. And um, pull out those three little bits of fingernail that I can add to my Ryan Gosling shrine. <laughs> my first film, which speaks to my improvised... My articulation abilities and improvised... Improvisational... Makeup ability. And my improvisational abilities. It's I Saw the Devil starring Min Sik Choi. Entirely uh, <laughs> improvised that film. I was doing a joke a minute ago when I was trying to pull a name, uh, like an intimidating man, and it was just the guy from the f- first film that I was going to talk about. <laughs> oh, I see. It was like a 
It was like a callback, but a very but a callback to a call forward. I paid it forward. I paid that joke forward. <laughs> you paid it, Haley Joel Osment. I asked Thomas Newman to score the joke actually, but he said, "Get away from me again." <laughs> it's too confusing, mate. So, uh, yes, I Saw the Devil, directed by Ji-Woon Kim and starring Byung-Hun Lee as secret agent Kim Soo-Hyun and Min-Sik Choi of old boy fame as Jang Hyung-Chol. And this is a film, you know, it's it, it's come out of the last 10, 15 years of... We had the Tartan Asia extreme wave and we got things like Itchy the Killer and Old Boy and uh, mm. Park Chan-Wook's Vengeance trilogy. And this film was one that I came across a few years ago when I was going through, you know, we all go through that Asia phase. It is a an epically disturbing, unsettling film to watch. <laughs> Secret agent Kim Soo Hyun, played by Byung Hun Lee, his wife is murdered at the beginning of the film by Min Sik Choi, by the actual man Min Sik Choi, and <laughs> um, swearing to avenge her death, decides to exact a very singular kind of revenge on him where he captures and releases him over and over again it's not only grim because of the you know the setup the plot that i've just said the actions of secret agent kim si hyun are so far-reaching affecting more than just himself the the disease that he has that is vengeance is spilling out into society and into other people and every single time that he lets min si Choi go there's just another layer of responsibility that he takes on for for deciding to exact this very special kind of vengeance the arc of the secret agent kim su hyun who i'd say is definitely an anti-hero at this stage it's it's far from redemptive you have films like wind river that came out a few years ago that would say that actually revenge does help revenge can feel pretty good in, <laughs> it's pretty good yeah it is actually pretty good guys in a life where you know you haven't got much else going on anymore. You might as well get some revenge. The arcade shut. Yeah. <laughs> Supermarkets going down the going down the tip. You get revenge. Start a co-op. Yeah. <laughs> um, what this film I think poses is that what else does this guy have other than revenge? And if you don't go for it, then what else have you got? It's a very in- interesting dead end of an argument that this guy's faced with. Mm. So for that alone, the film is pretty powerful and it's pretty impacting. On on top of that, you know, the, the film wouldn't be anything without the performances of the leading actors Byung Hyun Lee and Min Sik Choi the two of them are polar opposites in face (laughs) and performance (laughs) uh, and character and yet they both inhabit a similar mindset as you know uh, it gets increasingly similar as the film goes on I say faces because I don't know if you've seen these two actors listeners at home but Byung Hyun Lee has the the face of a porcelain doll and it's it's almost like laminate where things just just run off it and Mintic Choi, his face is a lined face. It has so much age and experience in it. And whenever he enters the scene, it's one of the most horrible things that I've ever seen. <laughs> and comparing this to Old Boy, for example, you know, he commands every scene that he's in, but in this, he's just truly awful. He's a he's a violent psychopath, you know, who toys with people and who manipulates people without a shred of regret. And every time he comes in, he seems to he takes up the entire frame. He just invades everything. And it's, it's, it's such a visceral experience. Watching him go about his life and then watching the secret agent toy with him rather than just arrest him. It brings up all these conflicting emotions. Terror and nausea are watching Min Sik Choi go about his actual daily life, his real life Min Sik Choi life. And anger at the agent who's just 
happy just letting other people suffer because of his own sort of selfish need for revenge and so all these things together just make it such it's such a memorable watch and such a powerful watch it's a very very good example of thematic and gorgeous south korean cinema from this era but it's way way more than the what the you know the tartan asia tag implies it's a really relentless and quite engaging thriller yeah very brutal Cool, good stuff. My first film is Thoroughbreds. Uh, Amanda, this is my stepdad, Mark. How long are you here, Amanda? My mom's gonna pick me up around midnight. Midnight's late for us. I'll call your mom. She can come pick you up now. She's busy. Doing what? Chemotherapy. I don't have any feelings, ever. And that doesn't necessarily make me a bad person. Just means I have to work a little harder to be good. From a director so fresh, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page yet. Or a name. Or a name. He's called Director Unit 5, <laughs> which I've nicknamed Corey Finley. Nice. So it's about two rich girls. One of them is Amanda, played by Olivia Cook. Uh, the other is Lily, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, both of whom are up and coming and are heading in really cool directions. So it's about these two rich girls. Amanda claims to have absolutely no feelings whatsoever, whilst Lily has a increasingly murderous anger directed towards her stepfather, who is um, sort of controlling all of their money and is uh, all of her money and is generally just being a pain in her life. So they begin to scheme about killing him uh, together. Uh, they recruit Anton Yelchin's Tim, who's a sort of aspirational drug dealer, to help them to carry out the hit, and they start to make their arrangements. You know, it's very much a coming-of-age genre movie, in which the friendship that the two form, the depth of it, or potential lack thereof, becomes very much the focus of the film. They've got a really great chemistry together, um, Amanda Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook. They really interact well. Anton Yelchin is brilliant. He's got this sort of edgy nervousness that recalls like young Dustin Hoffman or um, Dennis Hopper you know he's just he's just made of energy he's twitchy he's unpredictable he's very exciting and it just further emphasizes the tragedy of having lost him yeah um the direction is fantastic it's a very tense film it's a film where you wonder it's a film very much like American Animals where it's just entirely about will they do it you know are they going to actually go through with this and as you see the characters become more and more trapped, the more likely that seems. And you also get to explore their pasts and the sort of dark stuff that may have happened there. Um, in particular, Amanda has done something with horses that means that she is perpetually shunned by the people around her. Something happened with her horse. But it's also, as the title suggests, just about the class system in America and about how this um, so these very completely disaffected but very rich young women are offered no direction from their parents who are these kind of ridiculous figures and end up just having a really sociopathic attitude towards other people Hmm. and you can see how their environment sort of encourages nay rewards that um that kind of approach to human life and yeah it's all just carried out in this mostly single location thriller that just really fries on its tension but also on its characters so yeah, it was just a really, a really impressive little film. I, mean, I remember you talking about it last year, and it sounds great. And mm. I've been meaning to get into it. Um, you've just reminded me, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the top of the pile. On the other. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good stuff. 
Cool. Okay, your number two. My number two is Yafar Panahi's 2015 movie, Taxi. Yafar is an Iranian director who has is known for making deeply humanist films about social issues in Iran. So um, women's rights, political issues, and so on and so forth, religion. And in 2010, he was arrested. And on this occasion, I think he was put under house arrest for six years and banned from making movies for 20 years for disseminating anti, anti-Iranian anti propaganda through his movies. Since then, he's made a series of docudramas that have either been smuggled out of Iran in cakes on flash drives and or, you know, just with friends who are um, willing to help him do this. And Everyone he's... gather, your cousin has sent another cake. Oh, brilliant. Oh, <laughs> it's another film. Another fucking film cake. <laughs> Can't he just send us something nice to eat? Oh, I based the whole meal around this. <laughs> Cake without politics in it. <laughs> That's what no politics at the dinner table actually means. <laughs> it means don't smuggle political films in in your meals. <laughs> oh, got another fucking expose in the casserole. <laughs> so yeah, in in I think in around 2013 he made this is not film, which um, was him just walking around his flat discussing his imprisonment and his inability to continue the screenplay that he was working on. He's also not allowed to write screenplays for fear that ideas will will kill us all. And they could he, prove it one. They they could, you know. Ideas are the most dangerous thing on earth. Let's not have any from now on. Someone fought up smallpox. <laughs> so um, this one, his thinking was, well, if I'm not allowed to make a film, I'm just going to get in a taxi and talk to people. So so he does. Yeah. There's um, I think a lot of it is actually scripted, but it's um, it's pitched as a documentary. Basically, Yafar Pana he drives around Tehran picking up people that, that represent various parts of Iranian society. There's a guy there who recognises him as famous director Yafar Panahi and he wants to sell him some um, some bootleg DVDs and um, he <laughs> gets him to... This is really rubbish yeah. in my face, mate. <laughs> you've just put, this is not a film, and then you've just put boobs in brackets in the middle of it. This is not boobs, a and film. And then fannies at the end. Fannies. <laughs> <laughs> whispered. The brackets, the parenthesis means you whisper it. <laughs> like, it all shot, like it all song titles. Exactly. He took his cues from Taking Back Sunday, did Yafar Panahi. <laughs> but when he's driving around Tehran, he's picking up this guy and there's somebody else, you know, there's a, a couple of old women who are just, in, you know, in, in between criticising him. They're talking about their families and their commitments. And he also picks up a fairly well-known human rights lawyer in Iran. And the film, the, the series of discussions closes with this discussion about rights, political rights, women's rights. It's seen, you know, it's done in a very jaunty way with Yafar being this um, benevolent taxi driver and director who's just faintly amused at everything that's happening, but it's very, it's very much speaking to the issues in Tehran at the moment. You know, the same issue, the same issues that are preventing him from working as a director, are the, are the same issues that are keeping a, a lot of people under very strict laws and regulations. So uh, you know, it's a very, very enjoyable watch, and it's it's one of those films that I think would do a lot for people who are just a little curious about what Iranian, how Iranian people actually behave, and for people who haven't had much exposure to Iranian society, this is a very good mock realist piece. But at the same time, as this director who cannot do the thing that the only thing that he wants to do in life struggles to make these kinds of films, it's very, very important politically and artistically. Excellent. Good stuff. I like the way mm. you snuck in a sort of mention to Yafar there. Yeah, you know Yafar. He just uh, you know Yafar, me old mate. Yeah, me old mate. You know, it's Mister Panahi to to me. Oh, <laughs> Yafs. I call him the J Dog. <laughs> Hate the Yay Dog. 
can't stand it. <laughs> do it anyway. I agree with um, the Iranian government, actually. <laughs> I'm all for this hard crackdown. <laughs> Okay, let's go from a film that shouldn't have been made to a film I shouldn't have seen. Greener Grass. Jill, it's great you still come to the games, even though Julian's a dog now. Of course I do. When we talk about my favourite films from Sundance, it's going to have to be The Farewell, but I imagine, unless we have a hell of a year up ahead, I'll be talking about that when we talk about our top ten favourite films of the year. Uh-huh. But for now, I'm going to talk about Greener Grass, a film that's just a little too fucking weird to uh, get into that sort of contention, but mm. one that I absolutely adored, laughed all the way through, and he- heavily recommend. It's a comedy film uh, written and directed by Jocelyn Deboer and Dawn Luebi, two fresh young talents who are so fresh they don't even have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> or a name. Either of them. Or names. Those two I, I said made them up. <laughs> pure flight of the imagination but they'll know they'll know i'm referring to them it stars both of them and what it's about is two women who live in suburban america oh, fuck that's about all you can really get at with, in terms of what it's about it's a pure parody it's utter surrealism it's mm. real nonsense and it's blissful it's really funny i guess you describe the humor as surreal and the way that you characterize how the humor works is that everybody is just incredibly suggestive. Oh my gosh, I didn't even notice. You have a new baby. Oh yeah, isn't she great? We wanted to try something new. She's so cute. I love her. Lisa, do you want her? Um, yes, <laughs> but I couldn't. She's your baby. Lisa, you can have her. She's great. Are you sure? I'm sure. Take her. She's yours now. <laughs> and it's just it's just that. It's that kind of sheer nonsense. Um, you've got stuff like um, at one stage a football rolls vaguely close to one of the women and she just on a whim picks it up and shoves it up her dress. And when the other comes back says, oh my God, you're pregnant? Yeah, yeah I am. <laughs> and everybody just goes along with it. Some guy comes over and it's like, did anyone see where the ball went? But other than that, they just go with it. And then a few scenes later, she's given birth and has like the football in some swaddling cloth. <laughs> and everyone's just going along with it. It's so funny. And uh, there's stuff that they've got for the ancillary characters as well. One of the husbands is absolutely obsessed with drinking their pool water because he's decided it tastes amazing. At one stage, the son turns into a dog and it's about the challenges that they then mm. face having a... A son who's a dog. Yeah, like, should they still show up for football practice? He's not really really participating. He's experiencing a lot of discrimination at school now since he became a dog. (laughs) It's just, oh man, so many... It's Kafkaesque. It's full of of ideas. It is Kafkaesque in that respect. (laughs) It's... But yeah, and it's about how much happier the parents kind of are now that he's a dog. But oh, there's other elements as well. There's a horror thing going on. It's a very Mm. 80s sort of vibe the film has going on and sort of slasher thing. Jill is kind of the main character in as much as she's the one who gives up her baby, whose son turns into a dog and is ultimately left kind of childless as a result. Mm. Um, And it's just about how strange that kind of mentality is how everybody keeps Mm. copying each other one of the more striking details i haven't mentioned which never gets mentioned in the film is everybody's wearing braces (laughs) every single person all the adults in the film have braces and 
it's just yeah it's about the senselessness of fads i guess um yeah. there's an, another scene where a character is um just idly says um maybe you should divorce your husband she <laughs> says really because and there's nothing there's no unhappiness there but because <laughs> the friend suggested it it's just an idea that takes hold so it's a really funny parody a very yeah. surreal comedy film and just so much going on and it's actually an expansion of a short film that they made called greener grass um uh. but that film i wouldn't actually recommend that film it's a little off in terms of its pacing and maybe that's because Debor and luebi aren't directing mm. the feature film they actually directed they're acting in it and directing it and have written it themselves so it's sort of all about them but they're very generous as well, and as much as they give a lot of jokes to sort of ancillary characters, there's an amazing school teacher who makes up these songs hmm. uh, for the kids to learn stuff, and uh, they're just, they're very funny. It's a really well shot film, and it's just one of the most inventive and special comedies I've seen in years. Oh, wow. <laughs> How cool. It sounds like if, if Movie 43 was good. <laughs> it's kind of like if Movie 43 was good, actually. It has that same irreverence that I yeah. just love. It's getting a release in America in October, All so right. hopefully Britain won't be too far behind. Yeah. Well, Having said, I mean, Under the Silver Lake came out if, eventually, so. Yeah, I feel good about this yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I heard the title and went, that's never going to come out in Australia. <laughs> it's not, it hasn't, hasn't got Spider-Man in it. <laughs> oh, it's Greener Grass no. with, with, with Spider-Man in it. Oh. Ooh. We'll have that, says the Australian government. <laughs> finally, something we can all connect with. That's perfect. You guys should come over. It's finally warm enough to swim. <gasps> but honey, we don't have our suits. What's from the house? <sighs> okay, my third film to recommend is 2010's Nostalgia for the Light. Nuestro planeta húmedo tiene una sola mancha marrón donde no existe ningún grado de humedad es el inmenso desierto de Atacama. Ah. It's a documentary directed by Patricio Guzman. Yes. Yeah. Coming at you from left field here with the real things. It's a documentary about two different searches that are being conducted in the Chilean Atacama Desert. You, uh, one by astronomers who are looking for the answers to the history of the cosmos and one by women who are looking for the remains of loved ones um, who were killed in during the Pinochet regime. Ah. Now, the film relies heavily on the, the stark imagery of the Atacama Desert and the, the emptiness of it, the pure uninhabitable nature of the desert. No birds, no insects, no nothing. And uh, contrasts, obviously, with the fantastical wonders of space um and the discussions of the two and the comparisons of the two are pretty stupefying you have astronomers talking about how they are also historians and archaeologists because everything we see is in the past whether we're looking at the stars in the sky or we're looking at the phone in our hands everything we see but is by definition the past because of the 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 time it takes the light to reach our eyes and brains yeah yeah now you're scared finally <laughs> taking my threats seriously Shit. you know it talks quite wonderfully quite poetically about about their search for history in the skies and then they say um people can relate better to to that than they can to what these women are doing in the desert and that worries me and then we go to the atacama women who for the last 30 years have been searching for the remains of loved ones and anyone else that might turn up in the in the desert um, the numbers have dwindled now to just a few who have 
sworn to never give up until they find until they find their husbands their brothers people who just were disappeared during the regime and were never to be found it's made even more sad by the fact that um the pinochet's army exhumed most of the bodies from the desert and threw them out to sea so we'll, these people will just never be found but these women have not given up hope and are just it's all they've got left they nothing means anything to them anymore except the chance of finding these people so you have these this area of chile that was perfect for astronomers and that is also where an astronomer associations from around the world are pulling all their resources and building the most powerful uh, equipment out there to monitor space but it's also the perfect conditions for dumping dissenters so it draws comparisons between the two constantly it talks about the human like lust for information and for discovery and and, and for science and the human sort of dependency on, on having these answers at the same time it's a very bittersweet visually stunning and another very humanistic piece um from the three that i'm recommending today cool sounds really great really urgent well delving into the past now we go to 1978 and i want to recommend a british horror film Directed by a Polish man named wow. Jerzy Skolimowski. Coming over here in the 70s, taking our British rural horror films. <laughs> he um, he also directed a recent good film. Uh, called, recent good film, unlike the one I'm recommending, which is shite. <laughs> he directed a film called 11 Minutes, which I saw the first time, I think, I went to the film festival uh, in 2015. Hmm. No, second time. Um, it's the same 11 Minutes revisited over and over again from different perspectives, so it's kind of like Vantage Point good and there was a Q&A with him and he came on and I was like fuck that man is familiar where do I know that man from he played the general that Black Widow beats up at the beginning of the Avengers <laughs> no way <laughs> yeah but about 30 years before he did that he um he made a movie called The Shout oh I thought you were going to say The Shadow oh <laughs> The Shadow knows about The Shout you are looking at a man possessed of baffling powers <laughs> His name is Charles Crossley. He's incredibly well read. The power to take the souls of others. Alan Bates is Crossley. Master of primitive man's deepest secrets. And they are all dwarfed by his awesome shout. If I shouted for you now, you would die. As would your wife and anyone else around here. How can I summarise this? It's, it is rural horror. It starts with Tim Curry driving out to the countryside to participate in a cricket game that he has been told is lacking a scorekeeper. Um, I think is mm. the idea. But uh, the game is being held at a mental health institute. Once out there, he is sat with one of the patients, played by Alan Bates, a man named Crossley. Fuck, I love the names in this. Yeah, he's he's a really beguiling, dark figure. And he begins to tell Tim Curry about one of the other patients in this cricket game played by John Hurt and says, oh, that man, he's lost everything. Let me tell you the story. It changes every time I tell it, but there's some truth to it. Anyway, something like that. But he tells him the story of John Hurt's life and in it, in the story told by this mental health patient, we see that John Hurt is a sound recorder working out in the middle of nowhere, um, recording things like water moving across trays so that he can use it in his experimental music. And he's living with his girlfriend uh, played by Susanna York. Then one day he does happen across a stranger played by Alan Bates again. And the stranger comes back to his house and claims to be possessed of these powerful mystical abilities, including the titular shout. A powerful shout that will kill anyone within a what was it now? Um certain radius. 
I remember you told me about this. <laughs> he goes, he leads John Hurt out into the middle of the wilderness to demonstrate the shout. He leads him out there. There's about a 10 minute sequence of the two of them walking together out into the British countryside till they arrive at this like cliff edge. And Alan Bates tells him to prepare himself. And then he takes a deep breath in. And what happens next will either to you seem utterly ridiculous, or if the circumstances are right, it'll do for you what it did for me, which is scare the shit out of me. (laughs) The shout itself really frightened me and freaked me out. It was something to do with the way that um, Skolimowski directed that. It just Mm. really had a big impact on me. And yeah, after he's done it, everything's different. He's got this hypnotic sway over Susanna York's character. He's maybe sh- yelled John Hurt's soul into a stone. It's very. It's there's a lot of weird shit going on there. There's a great sort of bizarre rural mysticism to the whole thing. Yeah. Um. It's got that great aesthetic. It's creepy. A shot of a hand coming from around a corner to loosen the uh the fastening on a bike uh tire. It's just the creepiest yeah. thing you've ever seen because of the way in which it's framed. It's very Wicker Man. It's very much in that tradition of British folk horror, as Mark Gassis likes to call it. And mm. it's very well acted by everyone involved, especially Alan Bates. Very creepy. And yeah, it just has an atmosphere entirely of its own. So yeah, I really recommend The Shout. He taught me the use of the terror of shot. Now I can kill with it. Kill. Instantly. Prepare yourself. Every muscle, every nerve for the ultimate soul-shattering experience of The Shout. Fantastic. So, in the past, we have come to you with the likes of Ben Wheatley, Peter Greenaway, Lynn Ramsey, Derek Cian France. And now, I'm coming at you with another Brit. Because that's what Derek Cian France was. English is a two-pan note. Okay, I am absolutely fucking delighted to be here to tell you about Peter Strickland. Who's that? I can hear you already muttering into your fucking cornflakes. Well, Peter Strickland began... He's a Romanian director, I should say. Well, no, he's a British director. I think he's lived in Eastern Europe a lot, so his first film was made in Romania. And that first film was Catalin Varga. Now, Catalin Varga is a really effectively made revenge thriller. Basically, it's about a woman whose husband discovers that she was raped some years ago, um, and that the son they've been raising together may well belong to the rapist. So, Mm. banished from her community, she has no choice but to venture out and try and find her rapist, um, lying to her son as they travel together. Huh. It's a very dramatic film. It's um, it's very Eastern European in its sensibilities. It recalls stuff like Beyond the Hills. It just it just recalls the sort of stark realism, but there is still that fanciful quality to it. I think there are these dream sequences mm. that she has. She dreams of the woods where the incident happened, and there's a bravura uh, moment where she confronts her rapist and his new wife with the truth of what the husband did, and it happens whilst they're in a rowing boat. And just as she starts telling the story, the boat starts turning around, and so the vista behind her is just sweeping and whizzing as she's telling this fraught Mm. story. And it's, um, yeah, it's very well done. So it's a very interesting story, and what first strikes you most about it is the human nature of the drama and how he's drawing out interesting three-dimensional characters already in this sort of genre-esque story. Mm. But there's not much in it, really to imply what's about to come. He 
in 2012 explodes onto the scene with Barbarian Sound Studio. I didn't quite know I'd be working on this sort of film. What did you expect? What's he doing to her? Ah! I've never worked on a horror film before. Horror film? This is a Santini film. Don't call my film horror again. This is going to be a fantastic film. Brutal and honest. Yeah, this is the one that made the world take notice. The film is about a sound engineer played by Toby Jones who heads out to an Italian ho- um, horror studio. Formerly, he has experience of working on um, documentaries and children's television. But he goes out to do the sound engineering for an Italian horror film, a particularly vicious one, less Dario Argento and more sort of Bruno Mattai. It's um, something to do with the persecution of witches, and the director claims that it's not a horror film, it's art. Um, but it's mm-hmm. very obviously a sort of very gruey, visceral kind of slasher thing. Yeah. And as Toby Jones um, is occasionally having to take over the Foley work and sort of stab uh, lettuces and, you know, crush thing, various things in order to recreate these violent acts that he's seeing on screen that we never actually see, reality and fiction start to blur for him. And he starts to have trouble walking away at the end of the day and his character starts to change. So it's Toby Jones is just brilliant in it. He's so fantastic in this lead role, which he very rarely gets. Um, but he mm. totally just dominates the screen of his um, very meek performance of this man who's just slowly spiraling out of control. But Strickland creates such a rich world of sort of fading cinemato- uh, celluloid and sort of weird kaleidoscopic psychedelica. It's, um, yeah, it's very eerie. I love that Toby Jones can command a scene yeah. with a meek performance. Yes, he definitely can. He's got that sort of power. Um, and it's worth pointing out at this stage that at, from now on, Peter Strickland works with a different soundtrack uh, band. He works with different acts, one might say. And with Barbarian Sound Studio, we have Broadcast. <laughs> And okay. yeah, it, 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 the, all of the uh, bands that he works with bring this very strange sort of synth-heavy prog rock sound to the, the films, which make them very genre. You know, there's very much a feeling of this being sort of 70s pastiche. Um, and it benefits for it. It's a gorgeous thing. Next film up, and we see him getting even more sophisticated with The Duke of Burgundy. You're late. Sorry. You will be. To be used by you. I love you. You're mine now. A film that I had previously recommended um, as the one better thing than Fifty Shades of Grey, and I stand by that, um, Uh most certainly. It starts with a young woman named Evelyn who shows up at work as a maid. Her o- her owner, Jesus Christ, her um, employer <laughs> is um, very domineering. Uh, is very sort of commanding and impatient. As her requests become a bit more intimate, it becomes obvious that there's more of a relationship going on between these pair than we realize. And in fact, that they are taking part in some sort of weird sadomasochistic relationship um, when things suddenly turn sexual. However, as we then begin to experience this same scenario play out a time and time again, it becomes less and less clear who actually holds the power in this relationship. Mm. Um, and it's fascinating. It's fantastic. It's um, 
the setting is so beautiful. The uh, the main uh, the uh, person who owns the mansion, Cynthia, is a lepidolo- lepidologist. She studies butterflies, and that's very much a theme of the film. Okay. The, the Duke of Burgundy is, of course, a butterfly itself, but also evokes this, I don't know, kind of dominance. The idea of the Duke of Burgundy, but also a sort of wine mm. color. And there's a lot going on with that title, and it really seeps into the film. And it's just such a sophisticated story of these two really believable characters and the very difficult relationship that they have with each other in which a sexual kink is threatening to really unhinge the actual love that they have for each other and it's it's it is it's telling the story of 50 shades of gray it's all about how fun and games can go too far and become part of a lifestyle it's just doing it so much better because you actually care about the relationship between these two women it's worth also saying there are no men in the film whatsoever Oh. <laughs> and there's some very interesting odd little moments where he decides he decides to raise attention to the artifice of the project one of which is that mm-hmm. during a, a um a butterfly lecture uh is being presented to a room full of women some of whom are very visibly store mannequins like prominently in the background of shot in frame it's very interesting it's a very strange choice and uh the music for this one's by cat's eyes <laughs> I think that just about does it for the Duke of Burgundy. Now, his most recent film came out today, if you're listening to this as we're recording it. I wish you wouldn't do that. I wish you'd, at the very least, be patient enough to wait until we release it. Get away from Paul's bedroom. (laughs) Just get out of here. Stop hanging around. It's not the most efficient way to get the new episodes. We're not going to get any of the clips. We don't play those live. Got all the racist stuff that we have to cut out. (laughs) All of it. God, we hate every race. Every single one of them. Only the um, Puerto Ricans are good by us. Everyone else. Everyone else. Go fuck themselves. You know what? Before we move off of Duke of Burgundy, I just want to say that Sidse Babid uh, Knudsen, I guess. I don't know how that particular, I'm guessing, Scandinavian surname is pronounced. K-N-U-D-S-E-N. I think it's Knudsen. Yeah. Knudsen? Great. And Chiara Diana. They're both fucking amazing as these two women. Right, moving on. Just got released. In Fabric. Oh. Yeah. You who wear me will know me. What's that supposed to mean? Just a cheap bit of mystery. I think something's wrong with that dress. Don't tell me you're scared of a dress. Such a pretty dress. (laughs) This, I think, made my top 30 films. It's the story of a killer Mm. dress. Frankly, it's a... um, a woman, a sort of middle-aged woman played by Marianne Jean-Baptiste, a sort of Mike Lee regular, she buys a dress from this utterly fucking bizarre boutique, which is staffed by this Nosferatu-looking asshole and his legion of um, vampiric saleswomen. And um, they sell her this red dress, which um, Mm. appears to be... And then strange things start to happen. The washing machine explodes when she puts it in it. A random dog attacks her. But the thing is, the killer dress exists within a world of very weird shit. Julian Barrett Mm. and Steve Oram both play her uh, bosses at the bank. Um, Oh, cool. And they're hilarious. They're this sort of couple, a very cozy kind of um, homosexual management pair. Mm. who, um, yeah, just espouse a sort of new age thinking kind of management team, which is um, mm-hmm. sort of gentle satire, satire of, um, of sort of business talk. It's very funny. 
Gwendo- Gwendolyn Christie is bafflingly playing a sort of femme fatale um, <laughs> person who kind of ensnares uh, Baptiste's son. It's very interesting really? casting. Yeah, she pulls it off amazingly, but there's something odd about this uh, towering woman playing mm. the sort of um, temptress. <laughs> mm. it, it's, yeah, adding a physical dimension to her um, sort of uh, dominance of the household, which is really interesting. That's great. Hayley Squires is Babs. Um, Leo Bill is Reg Speaks, a man who is capable of um, talking about washing machines in such a way that is so spectacularly boring that it induces a um, hypnotic trance in the people listening to him, which um, <laughs> people find addictive. It's like David Foster Wallace. <laughs> At this stage, I have to say that I have purposely avoided talking about um, Strickland's MVP. Oh. Um, yes, in the same way that um, I think Rachel Weiss and Colin Farrell were the perfect people to be in any um, Yorgos Lanthimos film, because they mm. got it more than any other performer that he worked with. They got what the style was. In the same way, Fatma Mohammed is a, a Romanian actress who is in, has so far been in all of his films, and she is a revelation, frankly, because she's so good. She's kind of not noticeable in the first film she plays the wife of the rapist Mm. barbarian sound studio she plays the single ray of light the only person who is actually nice to toby jones's character who becomes as a result of the injustices sort of directed towards her this kind of uh what do you call it avenging angel um against the directors Mm. of this horrible film they told me what kind of films you normally do you never stop to ask santini or francesco why they hired you it doesn't make you curious then in oh fuck me this is where she gets great in The Duke of Burgundy, she plays the carpenter who specializes mm. in building sexual themed furniture for um, BDSM relationships, uh, including beds that allow partners to sleep on top of each other. That design is a lot more popular. And because of the spring, it's easy to lift up. With both designs, there's a lock at each end of the bed. But even without those, the weight of one's lover sleeping on top means that's almost impossible to escape. And at this stage, it's it's the gravitas that her accent, her um, Romanian, I assume, but sounding very Italian accent, adds <laughs> to all of her dialogue, which allows her to say lines like, uh, Would a human toilet be a suitable compromise? Adds this real gravitas and exoticism and oof to the yeah. film. And she herself has this most fabulous look, very long face, um striking features always made up yeah. in this sort of 19th century style at her i was just about to say striking i'm looking mm. at pictures of her now yeah she's really great and in in fabric hopefully this is the one that's going to make her be recognized she also has no wikipedia page and i've actually gone out of my way to try and start one for her to write one <laughs> i have i've written one i don't i've submitted it as a draft i'll see um i don't know what happens next i've never tried this before um i'm gonna i'm gonna flag it (laughs) this is gonna take him right back down (laughs) i'm not having this 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 is a page (laughs) that could have been taken up by a british actress now (laughs) um yeah in in fabric she plays the vampiric shop assistant who has all of the dialogue um none of the other shop assistants Mm. speak and she's so fucking good a purchase on a horizon just looking thank you the hesitation in your voice Soon to be an echo in the recesses of the spheres of retail. Be bold. Your date will compliment you. I would like you to announce the numbers to your telephone. She's so funny. Her, her timing is spot on. It's perfect. Um, she's got speaking this bizarre, archaic dialogue 
in terms mm. of her um trying to market dresses to these people and oh my god it's, she's just the best there there's something about the way she looks in that film that's it's one of those things where you look at it and you can't believe it hasn't always existed yeah like it looks immediately iconic like oh yeah that's just that that's that's how that's always been and i don't think it's referencing anything else i think it's just this brand new excellent thing and she's a very commanding presence i just saw in fabric in the cinema in fact and her voice uh, works really well in a cinema. She's got this deep, booming kind of voice that really fills up a room. So, yeah, she is the best performer in any Peter Strickland film, I think. And In Fabric is, so far, my favorite of his. Mm. It's, he seems to just be going from strength to strength. And, yeah, oh, and In Fabric, the uh, musical act is not mentioned on Wikipedia. So, uh so yeah, feel free to, to yeah you can just feel free to check that out for yourselves bit of homework for you there i'm gonna have to watch some peter strickland oh please do i mean i think a great place to start is the duke of burgundy or barbarian great. sound studio or any of the others because they're yeah. all great <laughs> <laughs> no. okay cool i'll try and remember that best place to start is all of them yeah at once oh it's like stabbing john goodman you know where to start <laughs> call so, yeah. back two years <laughs> fuck yeah i remember that just about brilliant <laughs> So that's Peter Strickland. Watch it now. Peter Strickland. Watch him now. Look at him. Look at him trying to get free. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> you, you got him in a headlock. <laughs> He's so old. It's rubbish. <laughs> Anything nice in the sales? Just a dress. So what director do you want to spend precious moments of all of our lives talking about? It was going to be Peter Strickland, but then after listening to you <laughs> oh. talk about him, I realised, oh, I haven't seen any of his films, so I had to think of someone else. <laughs> I was just going to talk about his face. How ridiculous it looks in a headlock. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the 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 other Ghibli master, um, who Ooh. who is who's so unknown and underappreciated that only 90% of all the YouTube movie critics have uh, made videos about him. <laughs> It's Isao Takahata. Nice. Who, um, obviously for me, Miyazaki is synonymous with Ghibli and Ghibli is synonymous with Miyazaki. For the longest time, you know, my introductions were Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle. They were the first two and, you know, I love those enough just to watch them several times. Princess Mononoke for me. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was great. That came a little bit later for me. Oh, that was Um, my first one. Everyone falls in love with their first one. Almost everyone I speak to says that the first Ghibli they saw ended up being their favourite. Strange. Yeah, spirited away for me. It just mm. it just has to be. It's fantastic. They 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 show it occasionally at the Astor Theatre here, um, which is like the Prince Charles there, but not full of twats, <laughs> uh, and and it's slightly less comfortable than the Prince Charles as well. Even before they redid the seats, nice edgy keeps you, keeps you on your toes, nice and awake. Literally, I couldn't sit down. Um, I think they've got these very like low backed seats in the Astor. <laughs> so like, oh, I'm just gonna lay back and oh, upright for me. <laughs> Yeah, they showed the spirit. They showed the spirited away. Isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I thought you were gonna band. go proper there. The spiriting away of Chen and Chichiro. Fuck yeah, <laughs> take that, Japanophiles. Oh. Subs not dubs. <laughs> Wubs not dubs. Unless you're talking about end dubs. Yeah, fuck it, love it. Fuck it, love it. Um, <laughs> fuck it, love it. Fuck it, love it. Abisa, 1983. Paul Salt's been here again. <laughs> it's Takahata. He came a little bit later because I, I was on my Ghibli binge and I <laughs> thought, hmm, Grave of the Fireflies. I'm sure this is magical. <laughs> Ghibli binge. Ghibli binge. Hi, I'm Professor Ghibli Bench. <laughs> I'm from Burundi. <laughs> yeah, no, I, so I then came across Grave of the Fireflies. I was at uni at the time. And I went, what a magical Ghibli experience this is sure to be. And um, yeah, I was wrong. 
in, in, in what I expected a Magical Ghibli experience to be, at least. Because um, it definitely was, and it stuck with me for the last mm. um, hour. At least, at least that. <laughs> um, Haunting. Yeah. <laughs> I, saw, I, I'm, I saw it in 2007, and... Teen. Yeah, I remember the, the sort of devastating feeling that, that stuck with me after that. Grave of the Fireflies, for those who don't know, is the, ni- the 19th... 19- Were you living in Northampton in 2007? I was... No, I saw it at uni, so I was um, oh. living in a flat in Greenwich. <laughs> and the devastation just really stuck with me. It was fucking magical. <laughs> that Christmas, I, I was reading a lot of Kafka, I was listening to what a Patrick Watson and walking around frosty Greenwich Park, and I had to just bloody go and watch Grave of the Fireflies, didn't I? <laughs> to cheer up. <laughs> Hope that I have, honestly. Oh, well. At least the beer's only six pounds. <laughs> Sometimes it's good. Um, Grave of the Fireflies. Yes. Um, ni- the 1988, not an anti-war film, Isao Takahata has um, striven to point out. And not a pro-war film, obviously. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> that would be quite something. <laughs> huh. Um, it's a story about a young boy and his little sister who struggled to survive in Japan during Second World War Two, and so yeah, not an not an anti-war film strictly. It's more about bringing the struggles of two ordinary people to light on a human level, on a relatable level. And yeah, it's an adaptation of the novel written by Akiyuki Nosaka. Nosaka, Akiyuki Nosaka. As you say in Japanese, uh, it's one syllable. And Nosaka had. You know, countless offers to adapt this into live-action cinema, and he turned it down because he found that the imagery that he was going for, the the particular hue of the the landscapes, like the loneliness of the two children, you, you wouldn't be able to get those colours and those sentiments with live-action. And and when Takahata showed Nosaka the storyboards and the, the sort of the multi browns and and the darkness um, that they were going for, he suddenly realized that animation would have been the only way to properly capture this it fo- it follows these two kids where they have these whole you know days to themselves where they they're having fun living by themselves and scrounging for food and you know in a in a war-torn japan um a lot of it is just cooking and playing and these two kids having really human moments um over a a, a backdrop you know completely fraught backdrop and a, a, a existence which is really perilous for the two of them without really going too much into plot developments it's by nature a, dif- a difficult watch like i said it really stuck with me because it was a it was a ghibli film that was way more overt about the struggles and i and i find that Mi- miyazaki what makes it so successful is the kind of the the tying in of these struggles emotional and physical with very very fantastical plots and, and worlds and it's they're they're incredible in their own singular, very specific ways. And I hadn't seen an animated film that had taken that approach. I think at that at that time in my life. But at the time, I wasn't even really aware that it was Isao Takahata directing it. It was just another Ghibli film. Many years later, I was living with uh, our friend Xavier, who oh, yeah. who owns all the Ghibli films. He owns the rights to all of the Ghibli films. Actually, Isao <laughs> t- Takahata. Now he's living under that name. The real Isao Takahata, or the fake one, as we're now obliged to call him, uh, lives in his bin. <laughs> well, actually, when when um, Isao Takahata sadly sadly died a couple of years ago, Xavier mm. um, was actually first in line um, <laughs> for the name. He'd he'd redone his own passport, and Hayao Miyazaki, possibly stricken with grief, mad with grief, saw Xavier and saw his heart, and you know, also his fake passport, and went, 
you can be the new Takahata. Or he, he, he doesn't speak Japanese, so he thinks he said that. Um, <laughs> it might well have been, please get out of my office, you insensitive man. And he said, sign this, Hayao, and I will. And he did, and now he's legally, spiritually, and actually the new Isao Takahata. <laughs> and legally. So when I was living with, yeah, exactly, it, it crucially, legally. And so I was living with um, Xavier Takahata for about a year there. <laughs> Um, just after I got back from China. And he said, hey, Paul, I've got two of my own films that I want to show you. And they're great. And <laughs> I went, okay, I've had a lot of reason to trust you in the past. Uh, so um, let's watch them. And they turned out to be... Uh... Takahata-san. <laughs> <laughs> he corrected me with a backhand. <laughs> and, um, and they happened to be My Neighbours, The Yamadas, and mm. uh, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Oh, and I love that film. Both of them, as Takahata progressed with his movies, he favored favored a lot more, of a much more of a minimalist style, mm. while still managing to convey these really grand, beautiful, rich stories. And we'll start with my neighbor, the ya- neighbors, the Yamadas. which was a 19, his 1999 movie about the life and sort of mishaps of a family in contemporary Japan. Sort of mm. standard middle-class family. The son needs to study hard and and do the family proud. And, and play hard. And, and play hard by studying <laughs> even harder. Nice. And the dad is just a salaryman and everyone's conforming to these conventional family roles and they have these surreal moments, which is where the minimalists animation style really comes into play because it only takes like a folding of a couple of lines until you're, you're no longer in a suburban environment you're in some fantastical alternate reality where the dad is a super a superhero imagining himself flying around and, and being the best dad ever and it mm. it just it, it's so malleable and it's, mm. it's just a really lovely film for that it's got a very its simplicity is its wonder and it keeps it going and it just it's it's hard not to leave your heart with it um mm. Then we go on to the Princess Kaguya, which is um, his mm. final film, I think. Yeah. It's a fairy tale, uh, you know, yeah. of a girl found inside a shining stalk of bamboo by an old bamboo cutter and his wife. It's... Beautifully drawn, exquisitely drawn, Mm. and on on its surface, it feels like a a very simple wonder because of its minimalist style. But it's it's so rich and um and inventive. It's like the the best CGI that's it's sparing, and it just hints. Mm. It conveys so much more than yeah than over you know overdoing it, overegging this particular pudding. When it's it's action, when there's action, the lack of detail really does become breathtaking. Like when Kugia um flees into the forest just running and it's yeah. just shapes and colors swirling past but it's so yeah. invocative and so sort of um what's the word it just gives you a feeling of texture yeah. beyond anything that sort of a richly detailed pixar world could possibly it's beautiful yeah the relationships in this movie mm. which like grave of the fireflies and like my neighbor the yamadas are sort of are at play behind a, f- a facade of familial ties or of, of searching for a suitor or whatever that they're, they're what keeps these movies together and it's always the thing that gets gets to you at the very end i, I when princess kaguya ended it's mm. again it's, it's it's pretty heartbreaking stuff and it's because yeah. every, everything is just so delicately balanced 
in this movie that the slightest upset really just capsizes me it's it's actually a very similar thematically to the works of yasujiro ozu and i wonder if that's something that really affected the post-war sort of young japanese men is this idea of um Mm. obligation that needs Mm. to happen and that as a parent your obligation to your child is to ensure that they get away get married and live an opulent you know good life yeah and that comes at the expense of the familial relationship between them um, that happened in so many of Ozu films that perfectly mm. good, happy parent-child relationships would be broken up by the fact that, well, got to get married. Yeah, exactly. And you know, this is what Takahata was going for mm. with Grave of the Fireflies as well. Right. It's um, it's it's you know, he's he's talking about in a, in a lot of his movies, and we'll get on to um the final movie of his that I'm going to talk about as well, talking about society and conformity mm. and responsibilities and your duties to your family and to society at large and you know the the ramifications that that has on the self Mm. and yeah you're right i think a lot of japanese artists do struggle with that message Mm. by by which i mean they tackle that message in in a a lot of their work Mm. and i think actually that we've talked about you know murakami is the other the other artist who explores the same subject again and again and again Mm. um it's about the individual as an as an outcast from society and how that that affects somebody it's 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 interesting it's such a prevalent theme in a lot of japanese uh yeah work and i think that even even when you look at you know the wind rises from miyazaki you get mm. similar introspection and even final fantasy 7 deals with that <laughs> yeah it's it, 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 like as a post-war japan it's, it's mm. very interesting i think murakami's 13 year old head at the time thinking about it murakami's protagonists seem to be the sort of outcasts who are willing to take the decisions that um, perhaps takahata and um ozu's uh, protagonists are unwilling to take they're not willing to face that yeah. level of sort of living outside of society and yeah yes level that level of perceived failure so this brings me on to the final takahata film that i want to mention mm. which is the final the last one that i saw actually the most recent one which is pompoko oh right which is my favorite oh lovely this was the one he directed when miyazaki had sort of stepped down the first time right and he and ah, takahata was being primed as like the new miyazaki and he made pompoko and everyone was like well this isn't miyazaki and they went it certainly isn't miyazaki yeah these raccoons have balls <laughs> it is about a community of magical shape-shifting raccoon dogs uh, struggling yeah. to prevent their forest home from being destroyed by urban development make that film disney fucking dare you you can try you can fucking try mate <laughs> But it, yeah, again, we're, it's about society's responsibility to maintain the balance between development and prosperity and, you know, resources. Mm. Um, but it's told through the eyes of these mag- magical raccoons whose magical power is definitely stored in their swelling testicles. <laughs> as of mine. As are yours, as you claim. And the courts will accept this one day. <laughs> it's my religion. <laughs> Exhibit A, Pompoko. <laughs> Exhibit B, and my balls. Th- the idea is that the, the, the shape-shifting is a bit of a lost art with with mm. modern raccoons um, <laughs> who are more just about... Trash. Just about having fun and dancing and, and that side of the tradition. But right. in order to save their forest, they have to start learning the old ways again. And they, they bring in some masters who help them to shapeshift again they start taking the form of humans and scaring traditional superstitious 
but urban Japanese mm. away from certain development areas in the hopes that it will stem the flow of progression or mm. at least de- urban development and expansion mm. and um, they'll have their home back. Um, there's, there's so much more to it. It's, it's a wonderfully strange and <laughs> singular Mm. movie with that's told like it's a fairy tale like it's a fable and it has this yeah really strange animation style and the, the practicalities of the magic it's such a joyous experience at the same time mm. watching these these raccoons dance around and yeah whilst they're discussing trying to save their their towns or their forests mm. their discussions are so easily railroaded by the the prospect of more dancing and more fun and just just watching these completely irresponsible people try to take control of their own destiny is a really it's very you know analogous to modern life this is visually probably the most i don't i don't want to say fullest or most impressive because they all are in their own special ways but this is the most conventionally ghibli in its visuals because the raccoons are magical and they're capable of some of making the humans see some pretty incredible hallucinations mm. and there are whole stretches of this film that are dedicated <laughs> no esque to um the visual and it's pretty captivating in a, in a lot of ways great we've just got four films here mm. i haven't seen a, f- a few of takahata's films mm. it shows such a range it shows such care and 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 love for the craft in in the this very subtle or sometimes very large differences in these movies there's actually also i should point out a really excellent um documentary about takahata's struggle to make princess kaguya and sort of documents the last few years of his working life i guess um and has some really revealing conversations that he has with miyazaki as well because he regularly visits the oh, set great. and yeah that's in there the fact that he was always really disappointed with the way it looks when the older brother cuts the fruit in Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, would use a lot of motion capture and sort of rotoscoping to try and really perfect the cutting of food mm. in um, Princess Kaguya. Yeah, and it shows what he's what he's going for with animation. And it's to make something that is as real as can be and then taking it that step further by, making it, by keeping it animated. Mm. Um, yeah, whether he's just... He, his films you've seen and... He's a bit of an unknown name, or mm. you're a fan of Ghibli, but you haven't gotten around to Takahata yet. Yeah. Give it a go, because I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Do it. Okay, we're going to quickfire some titles now. Just spend a couple of minutes on each one. Okay. Revenge! <gasps> yes. Women always have to put up a fight. Uh, 2017 French rape revenge film, Matilda Anna Ingrid Lutz plays Jen, who is a... Who is she? She's the mistress of a rich bastard named Richard. And, um, you know, it's all very glamorous. They go out to their um, sort of exotic home in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of this big desert, um, where he and his mates are going for a hunting trip. But you've got to bring the mistress along. Um, Yeah, go on. Oh, on. Can't fuck me, mate. Again. Unfortunately, one of the mates decides to assault Jen. Jen ends up in an altercation with the three men and is left for dead with a fucking horrifying injury. But she survives and gets away using ingenuity. A newfound ingenuity that she um, is able to exploit on many occasions. Uh, she suddenly becomes like Bear Grylls out in the middle of the desert. It's really interesting to see her transformation. And now she's hunting these three guys who tried to um, who tried to kill her. They've got to kill her before she's able to give out to society and tear apart their rich, cushy lives. She's got to kill them because fuck those guys. And it's just a really visceral, exciting, taut 
thriller. I mean, there's only four characters yeah. in it, really. And it's largely set in the desert. And it's just, yeah, three guys trying to kill one girl. And any accusations that it's a somewhat... It's, it's got a very new perspective. It's directed by a woman named Coralie uh, Fargiat. And, yeah, she just brings a really interesting twist to the whole rape-revenge genre. Cool. Yeah. How different can you get? My first <laughs> one is The Damned United. Oh, you are a disgrace! For missing the target from there, you want bloody shooting! Now get in there! That's what I pay you for! Ooh. Which is a 2009 uh, sport drama starring Michael Sheen as Brian Clough. Um, and it's about his 44-day reign as the manager of Leeds, which was um, sort of infamous in, in football history as just being doomed from the start despite his pluckiness and sheer like steamrolling of everyone else's wishes everyone in the club resoundingly hating him and doing their absolute best on and off the pitch to sabotage it including players just diving into career-ending tackles <laughs> knocking the ball around as i don't even know what it is it's football you dummies but it's got yeah M- michael shane gi- michael shane michael sheen giving a really <laughs> It, it, it's it's almost parodic performance, but sometimes you go that far and then it clicks and you realise that actually it's just a perfect performance. It's also got Timothy Spall in it as mm. um, Cluffy's assistant, Peter Taylor. There's a very sort of fraught uh, dynamic between the two of them, which really drives it forward, even you know whilst Michael Sheen and Timothy Spall are being hounded by Stephen Graham and uh, and a bunch of other really horrible Leeds United players. Yeah, yeah very watchable and it, it really in keeping with the the novelized biography of mm. uh, written by I think it's David Pierce. Yeah. Um just keeps the the strange tonal shifts and the the surreal nature of it really well. Excellent. What a cast. It's very entertaining. Colm Meaney, Jim Broadbent, Stephen Graham, who's the best. Fucking love yeah. Jim Broadbent these days. These days. Yeah. Ooh, you'll never work in football again. Ooh. <laughs> like this great, great Stephen Graham impression. <laughs> oh, I'm, practicing. I'm a bit of a racist. <laughs> God, he was great in this as broadband. So, <laughs> my next one is Wrath of Silence. Catch it if you can. I saw this at um, the British Lo- uh, British London Film Festival. That's great. I hate the Alabama <laughs> London Film Festival. Um, I need to make it clear. So yeah, I saw it there like two years ago, and I think I saw a poster for it at the um, BFI about six months ago. And I know that it was at Melbourne last year, but yeah, it seems to be a mm. film that kind of rolls around the place. It's a Chinese film directed by... Um, oh, let me sl- uh, just slaughter this for you. You can... What's X again? <laughs> Shin. <laughs> Old yeah. Shin. Old Yukun Shin. I'm uh, related to John Wayne, don't you know? <laughs> you can catch you can catch the film on uh, newasiantv.tv and it's actually really high quality there. It's a great really good subtitles on it that are like in Chinese and in English, which adds a interesting flavor to the whole thing. And um it's mm. HD on there as well, so you can stream it there. And yeah, it's just this fabulous film. It's about a young boy who goes missing and his mute father, who has an unfortunate habit of getting into fights, uh, decides to go looking for him and ends up embroiled in a local gangster's uh, kidnapping deal. Hmm. Um, And it's just a fabulous sort of, I I don't want to call it an action movie. I guess it is a sort of crime thriller. 
but it does have these big fight set pieces where um, our main character takes on a whole bunch of guys. The action has weight to it. If someone gets hit around the head with a wooden block, it really looks like it mm. hurts. And there's some very creative moments when a character suddenly grabs a fire extinguisher. You you do sort of get very worried. You know that you know something upsetting yeah. might be about to happen. I've heard that actually Chinese censors have an issue with movies where the bad guys don't clearly get their comeuppance. Nevertheless, this is a very hmm. bittersweet film that they've managed to sneak by here. One that is very harshly critical of the um, economic inequalities in China and how the sort of new middle class have risen up and are sort of manipulating and kind of enslaving a whole bunch of um, lower classes, especially in the mining industry. Hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of really interesting commentary going on and it's just a really fabulous kind of thriller with a very interesting and um yeah upsetting climax oh great beautifully shot too it's very un-chinese in the way it's shot and in its mm. music uh, i mean i know that's a generalization i guess the close comparison would be something like ash's purest white which came out this year it's um yeah much more verite than i would have um expected mm. but i guess it's yeah i'd have said that it's, it's closer in style to something japanese but yeah, very unmistakably okay. Chinese. How interesting. Well, it's hmm. good to know stuff like that's coming out of China. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go uh, from a story of one man taking on a whole other bunch of people hmm. to another about one man taking on a whole bunch of people. It's one that has been discussed. Um, I think in ref it's been referred to, and I wasn't sure whether to mention it today, but I think it's time just to properly get into it for one minute. Dead Man's Shoes. Yes. Make me very nervous, Richard. Well, you should be. If I were you... I'd get in that fucking car and I'd get out of here, man. And I'd gather them goonies and get whatever you've got and come with me. Because I'm going to fucking hit you all. I don't like being threatened, Richard. I'm not threatening you, mate. It's beyond fucking words. I watched over you when you were asleep and I looked at your fucking neck and I was that far away from slicing it. You're fucking there, mate. So get in that car. Um, because I think mostly we've just talked about how scary Paddy Considine is. Yes, which he is. And, and made jokes about that, which he is. Yeah, we have to definitely, joke about definitely it. Definitely is. Otherwise, we just cannot sleep at night. And so I'm finally doing it. Never sleep again. It's uh, <laughs> Dead Man's Shoes starring Paddy Considine. Mm. It's about a soldier who returns to his hometown to get even with a gang of like, thugs, gang of proper hooligans who have tormented his brother. I mean, Paddy Con Considine himself is a, is a terrifying man, but he's... Um, this character is, as well as that, utterly on the edge, just on the brink of sanity <laughs> and insanity. Yeah. He could go either way. The, the the gang that's kind of in control of this small northern town is, you know, running drugs and intimidating people. And it's a quiet sort of unspoken, unuttered control. And Paddy Considine is a, a reckoning force as he goes through in his anorak. <laughs> this terrifying anorak sort of yeah just bringing justice to all the all these people yeah and it could just be on the surface a very very brutal mm. constantly menacing revenge film mm. but there's a lot of there's a lot of human uh moments in there there's some very dr like black comedy in there as well mm. um this and the this is england movie mm. at least shane meadows is absolute best because it gets it gets something very very real and yeah. very very funny and very very dark all, all at once and mm. um this is definitely more outlandish than this is england it's it's just like being punched full in the face by let's say paddy considine <laughs> whilst you've had to watch him rear back and get ready to punch you in the face <laughs> in his anorak uh, yeah it's it's one of those films that just mm. is very much like tyrannosaur you just think yeah that's britain <laughs> 
Um, That's Britain. And that's what British directors do best, I think. Britain is a dog chained to a cinder block by a bald scottish man <laughs> that's that's entirely england this is that is england actually shane meadows okay my next one is let the corpses tan laissez bronzer les cadavres maintenant il faut les tuer tous Uh, the French Western, according to uh, Wikipedia, which is an interesting definition, from the um, interesting husband and wife duo, Helena Catet and Bruno Forzani. Uh, they have previously reimagined the giallo Italian horror genre of the 1970s in films like Amere and The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears. Here, they turn their attention to, I guess, Westerns. Yeah, it's very Sergio Leone, but also very Hodorowski. Uh, particularly okay. in its dream sequences, and it's about a team of a bunch of robbers who steal a whole bunch of gold, uh, return it to their hideaway in the mountains in Corsica, at least that's where it's filmed, uh, where the cops then show up and there is a showdown, a sort of free fire style, 90 minute long gunfight. And it's just wonderful. Mm. It's kind of labyrinthine. You might have trouble following who's who and where the allegiances are and who's betraying whom. But the style is so engaging. It's gorgeous. The experimentation, the um, the way it breaks down time, constantly returning to the same minute of time, which it indicates with um, with titles, and um, the bizarre visuals, like a, a a dream sequence in which a man imagines machine gunning the dress off of a woman, but leaving her perfectly intact. It's just. Mm. Yeah, the whole thing illuminated by the machine gun fire. It's just very interesting. Mm. It's just one of the more engaging, sort of visually thrilling films I've seen in a long time. And it's uh, got an energy to it that really pushes you through its uh, brief 92-minute runtime. And it is on Amazon Prime. So it's easy to get at, unlike Wrath of Silence. Okay, well, my final one then is The End of the Tour. What's this story about in your mind just what it's like to be the most talked about writer in the country that sort of thing you're like a nervous guy huh <laughs> no 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 i'm okay how are you because i'm terrified the story of the five-day interview between rolling stone reporter david lipsky played by jesse eisenberg and acclaimed novelist david foster wallace mm. played by jason siegel mm. this comes after the publication of wallace's epic novel infinite jest really it's a it's a series of conversations and um very little else going on around it and it's Notable for a, a, a decent Jesse Eisenberg performance, but mostly because of Jason Segel and what he brings to the role of David Foster Wallace. It's incredible. It's it's such a well-considered and heartbreaking performance um, from a very, very unexpected angle. And the more he opens up and the more he talks about his his depression, mm. it's genuinely dumbfounding, the, the, the revelations and the genius of, of that man. Um, even when describing his own his own decline, I suppose it's it makes for really really powerful stuff. Mm. He compares his condition to to people who jump out of burning buildings, knowing that they're going to die when they hit the floor. It's not that they don't fear death, but the prospect of facing what is there if they mm. if they stay is so unimaginably worse that death is the better option. And it's a very respectful, very very mm. well drawn film, and it's a it's a unexpected gem that one. Yeah, that sounds really great. All right, I'll I'll close us out by talking about Marjorie Prime. Hello, how are you? There is someone 
in my mind. I'm trying to figure out who it is. It's just me. It's just Walter. Dad's been dead for 15 years. Does it bother you that your mother's talking to a computer program or that a computer program is pretending to be your dad? Now, this is a film directed by Michael Almereda, and it's about a, it's basically a feature-length Black Mirror episode in which there is a treatment, a service called Prime made available to people. Um, if, I can't remember if it's specifically for people experiencing Alzheimer's or just in general. And the idea is that mm. it's an artificial intelligence unit which takes the resemblance of a, um old family member of yours who has died and you then speak with it you impart your memories mm. to it and it then feeds those memories back to you as your memories begin to fade thereby creating a sort of feedback loop and it's about the story of a woman named marjorie played by lois smith who has been bought this service by her children played by um tim robbins and gina davis uh they've bought her this service called prime and she uses it to imagine a younger version of her dead husband played by john ham and it's about mm. the relationship between them. It's about how healthy it might be or unhealthy. It's based on a play, and it's quite apparently based on a play. It has these sort of vignettes, conversations that take place over the decades. And we keep jumping forward, and every time we do, someone else has died and is now being experienced by a surviving member, only with them as an artificial intelligence unit. So it's about the way in which people tend to only find catharsis after they have... Um, but it's also about memory, the significance of it, and it's about artifice. It's about how... I remember reading recently quite a lot about the idea that the bed, when children are children, which is the best time for them, really, they surround themselves by simulation of adult... the adult world, yeah. um, but in a way that they can control and is therefore less frightening. And then as they grow up, they're meant to sort of abandon this simulation in favor of the real and actually sort of acquire things. But as we get better and better at creating simulations, there's the risk of people not releasing them and therefore entering into a stage of arrested development, which, you know, has its own merits and demerits. Some could say, you know, whatever makes you happy and etc. But this is definitely one of the ideas central to Marjorie Prime is this idea of how healthy is it to keep your dead relatives around as a kind of just soulless AI that's kind of just parroting back things that they've been told about themselves. Yeah. And yeah, there's stuff about identity in there too. It's a very, very interesting piece of work. All right, well. Cool. I suppose that's just about... No! We've got to talk about more! <laughs> oh, just one more. The Death of Dick Long. Okay. I saw it at Sundance also. It's from the director of Swiss Army Man. Um, oh, yes. Starring okay. Mostly Unknowns. It's about a, um, a group of friends go out drinking and then one of them the next morning is dead, and it's uh -huh. unclear. We don't see it. It's unclear what has happened, except that the two men who have survived are desperate to cover up their involvement. And okay. slowly throughout the film, this sort of um, Fargo-esque cop, this sort of Marge Gunderson-style character, um, mm. unveils what happened to Dick Long and what the implications, okay. therefore, are to for the two surviving men. And it's so not what you're thinking. It's, I mean, I found it utterly, if you predict this, God help you, of what actually happened to Dick Long. And it's an, it's absurd. It's really funny. Mm. But it's funny and how crazy and horrible it is. But also, there's real path, uh, pathos there for the main characters mm. who have partaken in what killed Dick Long. It's, um... Yeah. It's amazing how it portrays this family, this really close-knit unit, torn apart by this secret. And 
it's thrilling at first to see them try and go about trying to hide it, and then once the cat's out of the bag, it's just really interesting to see how the characters all handle it. It's a really fabulously mm. human work, and an unexpected... I feel like this director's just going to carve out a niche now of taking crazy premises and making them surprisingly heartfelt, and he's done it again mm. with the death of Dick Long. Look out for it. Great. Cool. Okay, well, I suppose you better tell people... Oh, one more! Oh, for God's sake. Oh, for fuck's sake, one more. Let me just catch you up on what one of our previous One Better Thing people have been up, has been up to. Missed Thing, rather. Guy Madden, the director of uh, The Forbidden Room. Oh, yeah. He's, he's done it again. Oh, has he? <laughs> he made oh, a film... No. He made a film called The Green Fog... Okay. Um, which is ostensibly a remake of Vertigo without using any new footage. It's entirely footage from other movies set in San Francisco where Vertigo is set, which he has edited together to kind of tell the story of Vertigo. <laughs> um, only with this weird green fog that keeps creeping into various scenes and the unusual what do you call it? Affectation? That he's edited out all of the dialogue, but kept in dialogue scenes. I can't explain it, but I can okay. show you a one minute clip of it. So he's cut out all of their lines. Yeah, and it's just reaction shots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting watch. Oh, it was the fucking... um, soundtrack by the Kronos Quartet. Oh, brilliant. It's so good. I absolutely loved it. It's at once a love letter to Hitchcock and to San Francisco and its cinematic presence and just a really entertaining ride as well. And yeah, I think that's cool. just about going to do it this time. Now, Paul, do you uh-huh. mean that? Maybe. I'm just going to sit back and just and just see what happens. <laughs> OGTPod at G-